Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Campbell, and I am so glad that you are here today listening to this week's episode of the podcast because it is a great one. But before we get into that, here's a few little updates. Um, I'm starting my second week of classes online for this fall 2020 quarter. During the pandemic, I can tell you that it is interesting. It is testing daily. I am also TAing for a class and I am super, super blessed to go to UCSB where we have so many dedicated faculty that are pulling out all the stops for uh, our education to make sure that we're getting the same quality of education online. And I've had so many professors address that and I, it makes it makes a big difference to me especially. That leads me into my book recommendation for you all. I'll make sure to have the name and the author in the description below. I realized I haven't done that with my last two book recommendations, but I'll make sure to do that in case anyone is actually reading these books that I'm recommending to you guys. But, you know, it's quarantine and we're all bored or we're at least looking for some intellectual stimulation, which is why I started this podcast. Anyway, this book is called Zaytoun, spelled Z-E-I-T-O-U-N, written by Dave Eggers. It is a national bestseller, and I'm reading it for my Writing for Humanities class with Professor Sarah Hirsch. And it is a wonderful documentation of the Zaytoun family's journey through Hurricane Katrina and the problems that they faced afterwards as Muslim Americans. So I think that it is a wonderful read. It is by far my favorite book that I've ever been assigned for a class. And everyone in my class, I think, has been agreeing with me. It is touching. It is not necessarily anthropological in nature, but it it's from the perspective of the family. You know, there's pictures in there. There's um, stories from their childhood in Syria. It's a really, really great read. I would highly, highly recommend it. And I think it ties in well with what this week's episode is about, which let me introduce our guest, Jordan Thomas. He's a second year PhD candidate at UC Santa Barbara. He's an environmental slash cultural anthropologist, something we've talked about in the episode, and he studies fire. Uh, So ways of managing fire, ways of how ancient societies kind of use fire, such as the Mayans, um, and Today, we really get into how he takes his research beyond. Jordan also just returned from fighting the Dolan Fire in Northern California. So first of all, the fact that he even made time to come onto the podcast, and he actually told me that he is, he and his partner, Mackenzie Wade, they listened to the podcast, which brings me so much joy. We've had Mackenzie on now, and um, it really makes me happy that people are continuing to listen to my episodes because, I mean, I don't. So thank you guys for listening, and for those of you that have given 
um, me a rating on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it because it helps my podcast be recommended to other people. And also, like, people have been sharing on Facebook and Instagram. And so I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you to all my listeners. I even have one listener who is writing me intro music right now. I'm I'm really thankful. We're a small listener base right now, but I'm really glad to have the people that I do have listening. So without further ado, this week's episode with Jordan Thomas. At the end, we talk about making your vote matter and political activism. And so I would just like to remind everyone to vote. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Gabby. So I'm super excited to have you here today, and thank you for coming on to talk with me. So not only is Jordan an accomplished graduate student in the UCSB Anthropology Department, but he's also a wildland firefighter for the U.S. Forest Service and just returned from fighting the Dolan Fire in Northern California. So first of all, thank you so much for um helping in the efforts the fires have had such an impact on california in recent something we'll talk about more throughout the episode is how your research also deals with the cultural and anthropological nature of fire and fire prevention but i did want to start off the episode by asking you how you got involved as a firefighter and what that experience has been like my, my first experience researching fire goes back to my research in mexico during my master's degrees that i did in the uk And I was looking at the techniques that people use to manage fire, um, to manage forests in southern Mexico. And so when I moved to California, it was kind of this cool segue where there was still this big issue of having to find ways to manage fire to try to protect your forests and protect your communities, but in a completely different way. So um, the day that I moved to California, I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I just started calling different fire officials um, asking how I can get involved in in the forest service and fighting fire. And um, they brought me in. And the day that I got an interview to become a firefighter was the same day that I met with Dr. Jeff Hawley to talk about joining the PhD program here at UCSB. So wow, that's cool. Yeah. So we kind of put our heads together and we're just talking about ways that um, an anthropologist could research fire in California. Yeah. And um, that's, I feel like it's definitely like a, a niche subject, but also that it's, you have like huge access to it here. And so I'm curious, um, I've read, I've read some of your writing about kind of what the experience was like fighting the fire and kind of what you do on the ground versus I think what people think of a lot of, you know, planes dumping things um, on on the forest or whatever. So kind of what is that experience like, uh, especially, you know, particularly in the Dolan fire that you were just at? Yeah, it's an interesting perception to me that this isn't the sort of thing an anthropologist would study because a lot of people sound surprised when I say that I'm an anthropologist studying fire because mm-hmm. it's hard to study people. And I think one of the really interesting parts of this is that really a lot of what is driving extreme fire behavior is a lot of those forces are cultural forces in the forms of climate change, which is driven by largely now different uh, beliefs and our ability to act and not act and what's the proper form of action, but also in term, terms of forest management. So that's one side of things. What's driving fire behavior is largely mm-hmm. a cultural phenomenon. 
And then the other side of it is that managing fire at basically every level from fighting fire to doing fire ecology work to try to predict what fire is going to do. That's a really individual, that's a really human process. Like it's not nearly as um, a technological fix as people think. So the forest, the fire ecologists are out in the forest, you know, like crawling on the ground, counting sticks and measuring trees and, you know, using their, using their hands and their bodies, um, Mm -hmm. not just their minds and technology. And it's a similar thing with fighting fire. Um, You know, there are technological advances like airplanes and fire retardant and helicopters dumping water. That stuff does help. But it still is largely just lots of human bodies out on the edges of the fire working to contain the fires. And the ways that they do this and do it safely, it's largely through a lot of accumulated knowledge by really experienced firefighters who um, have kind of accumulated the knowledge necessary to be able to do this and to do it safely. And I think that that's really interesting, especially as we enter unprecedented environmental conditions where this sort of older knowledge and doesn't really work anymore. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It almost remi- it almost reminds me of like an ancient society passing down traditions. It's the same way, like culturally, with the way fires are being fought. And it it will be interesting to kind of see like how that does transition. And um, I'm sure your research will play a big part in understanding that. Um, so before we kind of dive further into the specifics of your research and your work, I, I kind of want to give our listeners a little background on you and your journey to where you are now as a PhD candidate at UCSB. Uh, I know I always find people's stories of like how they got interested in anthropology very interesting. So um, what, how did you become interested in anthropology in general? How did you pick it as a major? Kind of what led you to this path that you're on now? Yeah, that's kind of a funny question. Um... It's one of those big ironies, really, that I ended up in anthropology because when I was finishing up high school, I really wanted to be a writer and I was going to major in uh, English or creative writing. And I had a discussion with my grandpa who wanted me to major in something more practical. (laughs) (laughs) So I chose political science. um, And when I was meeting with my advisor in undergrad, um, just starting things off, my mom was with me, and he was recommending that I fulfill this requirement in anthropology. And my mom was like, "Well, you'll you'll probably love studying bones and, and stuff like that." I had no idea what it was. I'd never heard of anthropology, and I got in the class, and um, I mean, basically the entire class was about our human origins and evolution, and kind of our place in the world as a species and growing up in a small town in Kansas, I really had really no background in evolution. And I mean, it it just kind of blew my mind. And I think that that's good motivation to just be a solid teacher as well. in uh, university settings, you can really like alter people's courses and blow their minds in ways that are really productive. So I didn't really, look back from there. I became an anthropology major. And I think one of the other ironies is, I think at least from public perception, um, anthropology is viewed as kind of a 
a really impractical thing to study. And I think that that's kind of a misperception in a lot of ways with the public, because I think that a lot of the biggest issues we're facing, wildfires are one, climate change is another. These are largely social and cultural issues that you really need people who have the skill sets to pursue these issues and provide um, sorts of insight into what's driving them. I think we need that more and more. And so I found it to be a very practical um, thing to research now as well, beyond just also being extremely fulfilled personally by what it entails, which is really like getting on the ground, talking to people, learning about people's lives, traveling, reading, writing, um, philosophy, all of these really amazing things which are intertwined in what anthropology is. Um, that's, that's been my experience with, with this discipline. Yeah, I, it's so often do I hear people saying that, oh, I, you know, I had no idea what anthropology was and I took a class or I watched a show and it's, um, it makes me really wish that almost everyone was required to take an anthropology class going into college. I mean, obviously, like you can fulfill it with GEs, but um, I'm, it, I, you're right. It just teaches you so much about the human nature and human uh, humans as a whole that uh, it's really enlightening. And I also think that something that people don't think about a lot is that you know anthropology is very science-based and even though we are a social science and we deal with humans like it still is um you know very scientific and there's a lot of data collection and lab work that goes along with it so uh yeah we we're out here changing those misconceptions about anthropology yeah i think a, a good thing to emphasize is what really helps define anthropology as a discipline is the amount of time that we spend with the people that we are doing research with and the fact that we spend that so much time with these communities and groups of people on the ground, because we really, in general, as a discipline, the philosophy is that we try to allow the questions that drive our research to arise from the communities themselves, instead of kind of cr like concocting questions in a laboratory and then imposing those questions on the communities. Yeah. So it's a really kind of like ground up approach to science and social science, which I think is really, really productive in a lot of ways. Definitely. And uh, you mentioned that you, when you moved to California, you hadn't necessarily like started on the PhD program yet. So what um, brought you to California and then to UCSB? Yeah, so my partner, Mackenzie Wade, who's in the anthropology department here as well, she's, she's the one who brought me here. Uh, Yay, we love Mackenzie. Yeah, full honesty there. We were living in the UK together, and I was working on my PhD at the University of Cambridge. And Kenzie got into the PhD program here. And yeah, due to just really, I think there are some advantages. In my personal opinion, there are some advantages to um, doing PhDs in the United States that I wasn't getting in the UK. Number one is funding. Um, yeah. <laughs> But then also, um, yeah, just the ability to, and the opportunity to come here with Kenzie it's, was really wonderful. Yeah, and of course now, you know, you're with working with Dr. Hawley, and uh, do you consider yourself more of, do you describe yourself as an environmental anthropologist? 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, it depends yeah. on who I'm talking to, really. Because yeah. <laughs> for me, I think I'm so deep into it that the, uh, the differentiation between environmental and cultural issues has become very blurry <laughs> in this world yeah. we're living in. So at times I describe myself as an environmental anthropologist, but other times uh, cultural cultural anthropologist. It kind of just depends on what I'm talking about. But in general, um, I think that the environmental issues and cultural issues we're facing and the sorts of questions that drive my research are, it goes back and forth and kind of rides the line a lot. Um, and you were mentioning that you did your uh, master's in the UK, which you have both a master's of science and master's of research. Um, first of all, I'm curious, what is the difference between a master's of science and a master's of research? Um, it's kind of a European academic mm-hmm. distinction. Um, there are very few differences. I'll just, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Yeah. You took a year off to cycle around Latin America. Uh, This is an experience I would really like to discuss with you um, because I read, he has a wonderful blog for our listeners that I'll have linked below um, that documents kind of the whole expedition and that has stories and photos because Jordan's a very talented uh, writer. And so I read that and I thought it was really interesting because the more you travel, the more you learn and particularly traveling with the eye and mindset of an anthropologist, I can imagine you had some really cool experiences and learned a lot about their culture. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. I like to think of it as a year on actually. Um, (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I took that year during undergrad actually between my junior, between my junior and senior year. And part of what was driving that was this feeling that it was sort of, reckless to jump into a career without any reference points for what is actually a good way to live which sounds like super obtuse but you know that's uh I was a you know an angsty undergrad and and I mean there's so many different ways to live and we're kind of channeled unidimensionally into this kind of one framework and there's really without other points of reference, there's really no way to know whether that's really a, like a fulfilling or good or healthy um, way of conducting your life. So I, I just kind of wanted to get out of the bubble for a while and um, talk to different people and learn different things. And um, my decision to go on a bicycle was driven largely by the fact that it was, it's really the cheapest way to travel. And I was a very broke undergrad so I had my tent and my sleeping bag attached to my bicycle and was cycling with my brother and one of my good friends and we were <clears throat> camping and cooking our meals and you know just really traveling just living outdoors and something that I think is a real um, really positive thing about traveling on a bicycle is just how vulnerable it makes you in the places that you're traveling through to where people are generally really comfortable approaching you and talking to you. And it makes it a lot easier to get to know people in the places you're traveling through. So this was something that um, we experienced a lot throughout Mexico and Latin America. Um, I ended the journey in Colombia 
And I learned what was one of, you know, I, I think one of the things I took from that was that it's not just about learning about other ways of living life, but it's also realizing how connected we are to these, to people in other parts of the world, like Latin American history and the history of the United States are completely intertwined in so many ways. They're not really separate histories. Um, and, and they still are today. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, just bringing that into the research on fire, a lot of the same forces driving fire suppression in California, which have resulted in these, the fires that we're seeing today in large part in combination with climate change, they like a lot of these same uh, drivers of this fire suppression are at work at play in, uh, in Latin America as well. And, and mm-hmm. Guatemala and throughout the uh, throughout a lot of the the Maya region where fire is used as a forest management tool um, there are large pushes to suppress those fires and to keep people from using fire and a lot of those forces really map on in an uncanny way to California so um, I think kind of making those connections talking to people learning about different ways of being in and viewing the world, but also kind of what connects people in different parts of the world. Those are all really valuable things for me to, to be learning at that age. Yeah, that seems like such a cool experience. Do you know how many miles you did in total? Well, it was about a thousand miles down to Mexico from my home in Kansas. And then it was a thousand miles from Mexico to Guatemala. And but through Mexico, we started hitchhiking too. So we, um, we, I mean, when it got too hot or we ran out of water, we'd put our thumbs up and there were bikes in the back of someone's pickup truck and they would take us as far as they could. And then we'd keep biking. So it's hard to say, but overall the the trip is about 3000 miles. That's cool. I, my dad's a cyclist. So I had to ask that specifically for him Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I know he's sitting here being like, I want to ride my bike to <laughs> Mexico and Central America. I already, hi dad, I know that that's what you're Yeah, we were, we were super naive. I didn't even know how to change a flat tire on a bike until a week before we left. Like, we were really. I thought you were going to say once you got there and I was going to be. We so were really concerned. learning that on the fly. Like, we, we made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. That's part of what made it so fun is we. Um, yeah. You know, we, we really needed a lot of help. I snapped my bicycle frame in Oklahoma and and some some old guy pulled up in his truck and took took my bike to his like garage where he works on his motorcycles and he welded my frame back together and then he took us to his trailer home and tried um and invited us to drink moonshine with him all night and you know it's it's stuff like that that it's just there's no way to plan it but putting yourself out in the world yeah. like that and, and through a means like a bicycle, it really just opens yourself up to a lot of experiences. Yeah, I bet it does that. That whole trip just sounds like such a cool thing. And you, I'm, I've read, I read that you, you speak Spanish, but did you before that trip or was that kind of when it was really the practical application? Cause I know, you know, I learned Spanish in a classroom, but when I went to do field work in Spain is when I feel like I really learned Spanish because 
that was when I was actually using Yeah, it. I think my experience maps on pretty similarly to yours. I I think I had finished I had finished the core requirements for Spanish, but then I mean I really became a Spanish speaker and and like yeah. during that trip. And you know, you make a lot of mistakes too, and that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah, I I um when I was in Spain there was one interaction I had with with someone and uh, he, he was speaking to me in, in Spanish and then he goes in English he goes you speak Mexican Spanish <laughs> and I was like yep I was like I'm from California like that's what we learned in school and it was really yeah funny. That, that was part of the interesting uh one of the interesting things about traveling as far south as I did is every country that you move through from Mexico to Guatemala mm-hmm. to El Salvador, all the way down to Colombia, it's, it's a different way of speaking Spanish in each place, which, which yeah, it's is a little bit disorienting when you're a very beginner Spanish speaker. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's dive into what you're currently researching and, you know, the culture, we, we've talked about it a little bit, but the cultural forces driving the extreme wildfire behavior in California. So you examine the techniques, uh, the management strategies, and the people who are involved in these fires and fire containment. What is sort of your method of data collection and your research questions, and how are you examining this phenomena? Yeah, so I think I should be clear that I'm, I'm, a, I'm in my second year of the PhD program here. Mm-hmm. So I'm still very much forming the questions that are going to be driving my doctoral thesis. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to spend this much time forming the right questions. I think it's, I think Einstein said that 90% of any problem is finding the right question. Mm-hmm. So my work as a firefighter, um, I am working as a firefighter, not an anthropologist. Um, that though the experiences that I get as a firefighter might drive it, it they will drive my my mm-hmm. I'm sure because I'm learning a lot of great things but I'm not out there fighting fires studying people um mm-hmm. I, should, I should be clear about that yeah um but in terms of my methods my philosophy with anthropology part of the reason I love this is it's always just to get as close as I can to my subject of study so with fire, it's getting as close as I can to fire um, and just getting involved in the processes of managing fire. So hopefully at the point where I'm officially doing gathering data, I will have all gained clearance, hopefully, to be out there working with firefighters in a research capacity as they work to control fires. Um, I'll be working with fire ecologists as they go gather data on on forests to try to predict how fires will burn through those forests and try I'm going to try to kind of enter some of these really interesting conflicts that are that take place around California where you have two different groups of people who both want to protect the forest but with completely different ideas about how to protect the forest um, so you have fire ecologists for example wanting to do fuels reductions so that fires, when they burn through, don't destroy the forest. And then you have other groups of people, usually associated more with environmentalists, who don't want the ecologists to do anything to the forests, which could endanger the forest. So really just to 
really enter into the the thick of things as much as possible. And in terms of like the that that's called participant observation. Like for um, that's that's one of the primary anthropological methods. And then um, also I'll be doing interviews and surveys as well once I hammer out my questions. Great. Um, thank you for talking about that because I think even though like you are in the beginning of your PhD, it's I love that on the podcast we get to hear perspectives from so many different people because I know I just love I like hearing the process and I think learning about people's process is just as valuable as hearing, you know, the end results and uh, especially with um, the magnitude and amount of research coming out of UCSB, I think it's great that I can like take the time to talk to you now and hopefully, you know, I'll be able to give our listeners updates on you again and like, you know, next year with how things are going. I hope to do the same with Mackenzie as well. Um, and so I think it's really important to, you know, learn what's, how are we creating these research questions and what's going into it? You know, what is the inspiration? So uh, I'm really glad that, you know, you got to come on today. Um, the last thing that I have that I wanted to talk to you about was um, shared on the Santa Barbara Bugs Instagram by Mackenzie Wade. Um, you and the other fighter fires during the Dolan fire were choosing to fuel up on insects and edible insects is something that we have been constantly discussing on the podcast and it's one of my new favorite topics and now things to eat anytime I'm at a grocery store I'm actively looking for insect products um so you know choosing to fuel up on insects to help combat climate change and to make sustainable decisions like why is a diet like that so important to you <laughs> yeah so I brought insects with me on the last fire um largely to eat on my own but then I mm -hmm. was kind of messing with the other firefighters too and actually got them into it they really enjoyed it and yeah. it's fun to see um but I mean there's two parts of this in a practical sense fighting forest fires is a form of extreme endurance athleticism yeah it's extremely difficult you're it's not uncommon to work for 11 hours in extreme heat with a with a three-foot chainsaw carrying a 50-pound pack of steep slopes yeah. um and you need to be fueled for this and red meat is not an extremely good stamina fuel source um and what's what's good about what's really interesting about insects is that it, they're an incredible source of protein and energy but in a way that's a lot better for stamina in general. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in a really practical sense, it just makes sense. And then yeah. the other side of that is for me, in a very material sense, there's something really kind of like cannibalistic about fueling up on red meat while fighting forest fires. Because mm -hmm. the animal agriculture industry is one of the biggest drivers of climate change. And by consuming red meat, and other meat to fuel myself while fighting fires i'm actually physically making those fires bigger in a material yeah. sense by driving climate change so there's something just really philosophically yeah. and just literally skewed about that um and it sounds crazy to people that just what you put into your body can have an impact on 
on our planet, but it does. It does. And it's so important to talk about. And the easiest way to decrease your own carbon footprint is just to eat less meat. I'm not a complete vegetarian, but I try to just decrease the amount of meat that I consume because this is the easiest way that every individual can decrease the amount that they are contributing to climate change. And I think it's really important here to make the connection that climate change hurts people, largely lower income people and the sorts of people who are outdoors cleaning up the disasters that climate change is contributing to, such as forest fires, which I mean, our fire season has been extended 78 days in one generation every year by climate change. Like that's, that's, that's not okay. The, the temperatures in the front range of California's mountains are getting so high that meteorologists are needing to purchase new charts to track the temperatures that firefighters are out working at. And these have real implications for what fire does. Like when temperatures go to unprecedented levels, fires start behaving in unprecedented ways, which puts people's lives in real danger. So, I mean, <laughs> so there's that sense as well, that in a real material way, you're just decreasing your carbon footprint and contributing less to climate change and hurting less people. Um, but, you know, that's not the whole story as well. Just uh, altering our own individual behaviors is not enough to bring society to a level of carbon neutrality. There's a lot of work that needs to be done um, holding corporations accountable because they are the major carbon polluters. So um, it's entirely possible and altering our own behaviors does help, but there's a lot of policy work and economic work that needs to be done as well. Yeah, a lot of, um, you know, electing officials that are also gonna, you know, strive to change those policies. <clears throat> And making sure that we're doing the most we can. Uh, it's, I was really, I think my like biggest impact moment was when I read the story of stuff. And uh, just, even though it, you know, that it's a bit different, but just understanding like the impact that every single one of your actions has on the environment and has on, you know, our future on this planet. So, yeah, it's people, we need to take responsibility for our own actions. And like you said, there is, you know, big policy that does need to be changed. And I think it's important our own actions to clarify here to as well, that it's not just the future that's being impacted. It is right now. These changes, yeah. like things have changed already to a point where they are catastrophic in many instances. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much a question necessarily of whether we'll survive as a species, but it's a question of who will survive. And how much we're willing to, how much damage we're willing to cause before we implement the changes that we are completely capable of implementing right now. Um, and I mean, a lot of people do get hurt. And um, I mean, and if you don't care about that, it's really not great for the economy either to be doing yeah. things like fighting fires for an extra 78 days every single year. Yeah. You know, that's tax money that could go towards, towards healthcare or towards, infrastructure or just you know just having a good public sector so it's it's not good in an economic sense it's not good in an ecological sense or a humanitarian sense to be um driving the sorts of climate changes that we're driving through uh our refusal to act on reducing carbon emissions so i just wanted to make that point here because that is a very that is a real um 
sense that that's a real thing that people can influence with their own individual actions and and something that they're voting does actually influence you know like we can't afford to have another four years of using tax dollars to expand the fossil fuel industry the absolutely catastrophic yeah well thank you so much for sharing everything with us i i know i really learned a lot from that and i i know our listeners will as well um also for our listeners i'm gonna have a bunch of his uh writing linked below reading his work is really beneficial and i would highly highly recommend it so thank you jordan so much for recording with me today i wish you the best of luck with the rest of your quarter and um yeah i hope to collab with you again in the future yeah this was awesome gabby thanks for talking Hey, thanks for listening. Give us a follow on Instagram at thatanthropodcast for more behind the scenes content. Also, make sure to check out our other episodes and leave us a rating on Apple if you liked us. Thank you.